You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles back to John 17. John 17, we're going to begin reading with verse 6. And I, I think I'm just going to read to verse 8. We won't get past that this morning. If we get to that, we'll be doing really well. John 17, verses 6 through 8. Looks like everyone has found their place. John 17, verse 6. Words of Jesus to his disciples. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words. We thank you, O Father, for your word, which instructs us and teaches us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would be pleased to bless us this morning. Bless us with your instruction, O Father. For without your working in our hearts, working in our eyes and our hearts, and working through your word by way of your Holy Spirit, uh, this, this, uh, this entire exercise this morning will come to nothing. Oh, Father, we are utterly dependent upon you to bless us. And Father, we're of good cheer this morning, for we know that it is your good pleasure to do so. So, oh, Father, with great anticipation, we look to you that we may learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The text that we come to here this morning uh, really reminds us that there's a lot of great mystery in the Word of God, is there not? And in fact, in John's Gospel, I mean, he is not a bit bashful about taking us into some mysterious, uh, mysterious things. And when we come to this particular passage, uh, we find a number of mysteries here. One is the great mystery of the invisible God being made visible. You know, the invisible God being made visible. Another one is here we see a community of people that is given from the Father to the Son. And uh, that's another great mystery that we have here. And that takes us to a third mystery that we see uh, really primarily in verse 6, all of these things we see in verse 6, and that is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And this is some of the mysteries that we see in this this, uh, text. And that's why I want to title this uh, text, Great Mysteries. uh, Here we are uh, loaded with some great mysteries. If we look at the very first words of this text, um, here Jesus is praying to the Father. We looked at this two weeks ago. If you back up to verse 1, we're told that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven, and he says, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And there we spent a lot of time looking at the fact that Jesus is glorified on the cross, right? And that's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? Again, that's a bit of a mystery in itself, isn't it? Because I think our intuition is to go like this. How could you be glorified hanging, unclothed, before the public, 
in anguish on a cross, which was reserved only for the, for the worst of criminals of the society. Yet we find Jesus is never more glorified during his earthly ministry than when he's hanging on that cross. And think about how many souls have been won by that act of love that Jesus put forth right there. Think of how many souls have come to know the love of the Father because they've looked to the cross and they've seen a dying Savior in their place. How many generations of people have turned from darkness and into light because they've seen the glory of God with Jesus hanging on the cross? There you see the glory of Jesus, and you see the great glory of the gospel. Nothing really sets us on a path of righteousness until we have seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the love of Jesus dying in our place. Amen? The threat of judgment doesn't put us on the path of righteousness. Not like this. Not like this. It's a love, as I've said many, many times. What 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 causes a woman to run into a burning house to get her children? Is it, was she worried what the neighbors are going to think if she doesn't? No, it's love for the child. Love is a powerful thing. It's the most powerful thing. Love is what sets us on the course of righteousness, isn't it? And when we find ourselves deviating from the left or to the right, what, what, nothing sets us back on the straight path than looking to the cross, looking to Jesus dying in our place. That's where we find our food. That's where we find our encouragement. That's where we find our strength, isn't it? There we see Jesus is most glorified. And it's a great mystery. We can only explain it so far. But here in verse 6, Jesus is continuing this prayer. The church has historically referred to this as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And really within maybe an hour or two, Jesus is going to be arrested. And the next day, he is going to be hanging on a cross. The very next day. And what does Jesus say in his prayer? He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Now let's look at that verse for a few minutes because there are so many things in this verse that we really need to understand before we progress any further with this prayer. And one of them is name. Now the word name has a, 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 a pretty significant role in Jesus' prayer. If you look in verse 11, you'll see that part of Jesus' petition, one of his petitions, is, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. And in verse 12, I have kept them in your name. And then if you look clear down to verse 26, you'll see a parallel to verse 6. It's a parallel, but it advances Jesus' thought a little bit further. But you see the phrase, I made known to them what? Your name. So we have to get, we have to get a, a, a firm handle, if you will, on what does Jesus mean by name? What is meant by that? This morning, the uh, devotion that I shared down at the park was from Proverbs 18 and verse 10. And the idea to uh, write a devotion around that verse came from a study of this very text. Uh, Proverbs 18 and verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Now, I think that verse very graphically shows us what is meant by the name. You know, in ancient cities, oftentimes they constructed these towers. What was the purpose of these towers? Well, the purpose of the tower was if you had an invading army coming in, everyone in, this, in, this, in the town could run into the tower and be safe at least be safe for a while. 
And so the, the proverb uses that imagery uh, to show the safety that is found in the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Now, in that context, how should we understand the word name? Well, it's referring to God himself, isn't it? God himself is a strong tower. So it's speaking of God himself, but uh, it speaks of all who God is. It speaks of all his attributes, his, his mighty power, if you will. Uh, it speaks of his seeing all things. There's nothing that escapes God's notice. How comforting that is sometimes, especially when you're being accused of something you didn't do. Nothing can be more comforting when you're being accused of something you didn't do than knowing that the Lord knows that. The Lord doesn't have to uh, embark on an investigation to try to find out what happened. Everything is plain and before his eyes, isn't it? He's all-knowing. He knows everything. You know, Jeremiah tells us how deceitful our hearts are. He tells us how, how murky our hearts are. He tells us that we can't even understand our hearts, but God can understand our hearts. How wonderful that is when you're confused, when you're perplexed, or when you're going through times which sometimes we go through and you can't figure out what's, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just in this spot. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of shape? I don't know what's wrong with me. I really have no reason to feel the way I do, but I'm just in this valley. God knows what's wrong. He knows what's wrong. You know? And we could add to this His mercy. Last week when we were looking at verse 1, we were talking about the glory of the Lord. And we went to, uh, well, this was two weeks ago, I'm sorry. We went to um, Exodus 33 and 34 to look at that. It's one of the places where we really see the glory of the Lord. And, and Moses wants to see. He says to, he says to the Lord, show me your glory. And, and if you recall, I said there, it isn't so much what Moses sees as it's what Moses hears, isn't it? It isn't so much. Moses does see some things, but it, it almost seems like this, this, the, the, the major significance to that passage is what Moses hears. He gets a sermon. You know, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what Moses hears. And the beauty of that, as I pointed out two weeks ago, is that we can follow Moses up on the cleft of the rock and get the same sermon, can't we? And with the eye of faith, and the superintendents of the Holy Spirit, we also can see God's glory, can't we? And the name of the Lord encompasses all of that. The Lord tells us that. Yahweh himself, the Lord, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, the only God, the one and only God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We hear all these things, but also a God who is just. He pardons, he forgives, iniquity, transgression, and sin. We looked at all that, didn't we? But he by no means compromises his justice in doing that. Now, when Jesus says that I have manifested your name to the people whom he meant, Jesus has manifested 
He has manifested God before their eyes. And that takes us to the, to the next thing. If you look at the word manifested, at least it is in the ESV, manifested. It could read reveal. I have revealed. And this actually uh, brings us to think, um, and John, I mean, John's already developed this in many other places. In fact, if you go back to John chapter 1 in the opening verses, we see this kind of thing. And I, and I used an illustration back there when we first started in our study of John's. And I, it was one of those illustrations I kind of used on the fly. And afterwards, I thought, that's one of the quirkiest illustrations that I've come up with in a while. And, um, you know, the, but, but a couple of you have come to me and said it was really helpful. Um, and it's the illustration of the dolphins. <laughs> I quit using it because I thought it was so quirky. But I know some of you have been helped by it. Uh, so I'm going to use it again. And one of the tricky things about preaching through John's gospel is exactly this. You know, many of us have been at the beach. That's why I use the illustration. And if you spend any time at the beach, it's a matter of time before you're going to see some dolphins. How many have seen dolphins? You see them jump out of the water. Well, you can only see them when they jump up out of, out of the water, right? And the idea is, okay, you'll see one, maybe two jump out, then they submerge. Well, they're still there. They're just beneath the surface. And John's gospel is like that. We need, to be, we need to be aware of that. John introduces themes. They jump up out of the surface and you see them, then they submerge. But they're always there running in the fabric of his text. And then they'll jump up at a later time. And each time they jump up, John is showing us something more about them. He is showing us something else about each one of these things. And that's what makes it tricky to, to, to work through this, uh, this text because you don't want to overdevelop any of these because you're getting ahead of John. It's like sometimes when you're leading Bible studies. And if anyone's ever led a Bible study, you know how this works. Oftentimes, the people that are in the Bible study are all in different places. Some are... Some are more familiar with the material than others, and sometimes they get you ahead of where you really want to be at the moment. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll start saying something, and you intend to say that, but not yet, you know, and, and you can easily do that with John's gospel. You can easily do that with John's gospel. We need to work through John's gospel and let John develop, his, uh, develop these themes as the Holy Spirit has given them to us. Does that make sense? Just a little help on how to read John's gospel. Now, when we come to these opening words, and I hope nobody here ever gets tired of hearing these words or reading these words, because here we're taken to a mystery. What a mystery we have here. We're taken back before anything was created. And without this word, we'd have no way of knowing any of this information, would we? There would be no way to know all of this. I mean, science can only do so much. We need to always remember science is incredible. It's incredible because science belongs to God. It's God's. We don't diminish science. We love science. But science is created, right? It only takes us so far. Without God's Word, without Him giving us a snapshot of, of this scene right here, we would never have this. And what a scene it is. We're told in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here, here, here we're told about, okay, the Word, okay, and the Word is with God. And some have tried to simplify this, and this is, this is one of the things we want to be on our guard about with God's mysteries. 
We always want to be able to explain them. We want to be able to chart them. We want to be able to put them on a, we want to make a nice little neat Western outline of these things, you know? And we're always trying to, when we, oftentimes when we do that, we simplify them. And some have said, well, you know, the word must have been created because he was with God and there's only one God. But yet the verse won't let us go there, will it? Because the verse tells us in verse 3 that all things were made through him. Through who? Through the word. And that without him not anything was made that was made. This would include the word. He is uncreated. You talk about a mystery. We'll say, well, there's only one God. Yeah, that's right. And he is God. Okay, so we got one God, but he's with somebody who is also God. Now, if that isn't a mystery, I mean, how far can we really plumb that? And why is God showing us that? He's showing us this little marvel and a wonder. I mean, have you ever, like, looked into the Trinity just to marvel and to wonder? One God, three persons. And here we have one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture concerning the first person, who is the Father, and the second person, who is the Son. And in verse 14, you hear me quote this all the time, but I only quote the first part of it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I quote that all the time, but oftentimes we don't finish. We should finish the verse. Look at the rest of it. The testimony of the apostles is this. We have seen His glory. He became flesh. Who? The eternal Word, the uncreated Word who was with God, who was God. He became flesh, and we have beheld his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you look down to verse 18, no one has ever seen God. He's the invisible God, right? How can we see that which is invisible? No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. (laughs) Talk about a mystery. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Up there goes the dolphin. That revelation, the unseen God has been made visible. You read through John's gospel, and there's many other places we could talk about this, but go to John chapter 5 with me. And in John chapter 5, while you're turning there, the context is an unnamed feast where Jesus comes upon an invalid, a man who's been uh, invalid for 38 years. And in verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. Well, this man has never been able to do this, not for 38 years. And his only hope is to to jump into this pool uh, when an angel stirs it. And we, we could talk about that in the hallway afterwards. But... He has virtually no, he has no hope, actually. But he who is hope, our blessed hope, comes to him and just with a word, just with a word says, get up, take your mat or take your bed and walk. And it reminds you of Genesis 1, doesn't it, where the Lord says, let there be light and there's light. Just with the power of his word, he who upholds all creation by the word of his power looks at this man and says, get up, take up your bed and walk, and what does he do? For the first time in 38 years, he's walking around carrying his bed. And the tragedy of this 
is that all that the religious leaders can see in this is a man breaking their Sabbath laws. And this should warn us, we could make application right now, this should warn us of the tragedy of legalism and the tragedy of a legalistic spirit. A legalism and a legalistic spirit spirit renders the heart cold as ice, doesn't it? It renders the heart cold as a stone, cold as ice. We always mean to be on our guards. There's a legalist in every one of us. We need to always guard our hearts against that Pharisee, against that legalist, against that one who can't see the beauty of what's taking place but can only see and pick apart what we think might be wrong with it. Now, in verse 18, I made a lot of noise about this verse when we were there. Uh, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their estimation, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, was he calling God his own father? Yes. Was he making himself equal to God? Yes. Who else could tell this person to get up who's invalid for 38 years and pick up his bed and walk? Who else could do that? Now, notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 19. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And this is a claim to deity right here. It's a claim to being God. First of all, who besides Jesus can see all that the Father is doing? Sometimes we can see things that the Father's done, but usually it's long afterwards. Sometimes we can get a we can get an idea. We might say to ourselves, "I think the Lord's working in in uh, in, in 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 Joe's heart, if you will." It seems that the Lord's working there, but we can only guess. But who can see and who can know all that the Father is doing? Jesus. Now, even more so than that, who? not only can see all that the Father is doing, but do likewise. It'd be one thing to be able to see all that the Father is doing if he'd give us eyes that we could see everything that he's doing, but then it would be another thing to be able to do as the Father is doing. And what's Jesus' point here? He says, I can do nothing of my own. His point, his, his point here is everything that you see me doing is that which the Father is doing. And that's the point. The Word has come to make the Father visible. We'll say, well, how is He made visible? Well, the works and activity of Jesus are so closely aligned and brought in harmony and concert with the work of the Father that when you see Jesus working and operating and and moving about in His earthly ministry, you're also seeing the Father move about and work about in His mystery in his uh, ministry. You know, I like this example. You know, the example of the, of the Eagles, I'm not necessarily recommending that you go out and buy the Eagles' greatest hits, but it was a band that was really popular when we were kids. And, you know, we had a, uh, had a school bus driver, and we had a school bus at the time that was, it was, it was cl- uptown. You've heard me say this before. Our school bus had an eight-track player, man. It was, it was like uptown. And this particular school bus driver that we had, she was a good friend of my grandmother's. She went to our church, and she was really good with us. I mean, as I look back now as an adult, she was so wonderful with us. She kept us in line with that 8-track player. 
When we got out of line, she'd sound off a warning. All right, everybody, you better settle down for a shot. <laughs> then, this, then we knew we could ignore that, and we keep on going. And she'd say, here comes the second one. All right, everyone, it's enough. Time to start settling down. And we'd settle down a little bit, but then you know what we did. And we did what kids do. We got anxious again. You know, we started back again. And then she said, you know what? If I warn you one more time, I'm turning off the eagles. That bus went silent. It just went, it just went silent. She could silence the bus and put us right in line uh, with, the, with the eagles, you know. And I use them because, you know, the eagles was a band, and you've all heard their songs. You've turned on a, any radio stage. You walk through any mall or you walk through um, a grocery store or something, you're eventually going to hear their songs. They're still played today. And uh, uh, I'm certainly not endorsing the Southern um, California 70s lyrics that were popular in those songs, but uh, the music was fantastic. And the members of the Eagles all went off and had solo careers. You had Don Henley, you had Glenn Fry, you had Joe Walsh. All of them went off to be, you know, household names practically in their, in their right. And the point is, I've said this many times through the course of this study, God doesn't do that. The persons of the Trinity do not go off on solo projects. Jesus is perfectly in concert with the Father, so much so that what you see that Jesus doing, you can be rest assured the Father is doing as well. So it could be equally said that the Father is doing all this. And that's what Jesus continually does. This is one of the dolphins that jumps up out in John's gospel, is that Jesus is committed and surrendered to doing nothing but what the Father does. If you look at verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. That's his repeated testimony. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This theme jumps up over and over again, and there's a, there's a, there's a strong reason for this. What Jesus wants us to see is that he is revealing the Father. So much so that when we go to John 14, we see this dolphin jumping up again. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And what happens in response? Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, what does that mean? I heard a pastor. Tammy and I both heard a pastor who should know better. I heard him say, uh, it's probably been a year and a half ago, that Jesus is the Father. I couldn't believe I was hearing my words. It was in a place where this shouldn't have been said. And I was really in an uncomfortable spot. I'm like, uh, I wanted to run my big mouth, but I didn't. I thought, that's not my job. It's not, this is the job of the elders here but hopefully somebody's going to say something um, and not let that go. Jesus is not the Father. He is not the Father. But he is so in concert with the Father that what you see Jesus doing, you see the Father doing. If we want to know what the Father is like, we can look to Jesus and find out exactly what the Father is like. 
If we want to know what the mercy of God is like, we can look to Jesus and see the mercy operative. If we want to know what the love of God is like, we can look to Jesus, especially on the cross, and see the love of Jesus being displayed on the cross. What is that? It's the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, isn't it? We can see all of these things. And this takes us back to John 17, verse 6, where Jesus says, I have manifested in his prayer to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me. Jesus has come to make the invisible God visible. How do we see the invisible God? We see the invisible God through the works and ministry of Jesus Christ, don't we? That's why we could say that the Gospels are the works and ministry of Jesus Christ. We could say that. I have books in my library that describe those, those works that way, the works and ministry of our, of our Lord and Savior. We could equally say these are the works and ministry of the Father, couldn't we? We could also say this is the works and ministry of the Holy Spirit. They don't go on solo projects. So they make all of these things. Jesus is is the, the great mystery that we have here is Jesus is making the Father known. The second thing we discover out of this verse is that there's a community of people who are the fathers. They come out of the world and they are given to the Son. If you look at verse 6 again, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And we learn about a community of people, a community of the people that the scriptures refer to as the elect. And sometimes if you read literature, especially if you're reading some of the um, liberal theologians, I don't recommend you read them, but sometimes you'll come across these things and they'll speak about, you know, uh, Pauline this and Pauline that. Uh, and they'll talk about Pauline doctrines. What's a Pauline doctrine? Predestination sometimes is referred to as a Pauline doctrine. Pauline meaning a doctrine that belongs to Paul, that would belong to his letters. And Paul does develop uh, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. He does develop these things. But when you read that, hopefully you're scratching your head and saying, is this completely a Pauline doctrine? Is Paul the only one who speaks of these things? Is there anyone else in Scripture who speaks of these things? Right here, we're seeing John doing it. John speaks of these things. And actually, Jesus does too. Jesus is the one speaking here, is he not? He's inviting us into a mystery. This is a great mystery. And in fact, you know, we don't have time to look at it today, but if you look at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, for example, in Matthew 24, in that discourse, Jesus uses the word elect three times. The elect. The elect are the group of people whom the Father has given to the Son. Now, um, some, it, it, the world's not real wild about this particular doctrine. Sometimes it's referred to as predestination or election. Uh, the world's not very wild about that, and especially in America we're not very wild about that because we like to be in the driver's seat, don't we? We like to be in control. Here we decide, we see, wait a second, maybe I'm not quite as in control as I once thought. Well, before we go too far with that, there's two things that we always need to keep in mind here when we're talking about election and predestination. 
There are two things. One is the sovereignty of God, which we've talked about so far. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father enables him, right? This flesh is of no avail. It's the Spirit who gives life. He says these things, right? But the other thing that we need to always keep forward when we're having this discussion is human responsibility. Both are in our text. Notice this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. And... They have kept your word. They have kept your word. So here we see the human component. The human We are responsible to hear God's word. We are responsible to believe God's word. That's a responsibility that we have. And whenever we talk about biblical predestination, we need to keep both of these things forward. One of the problems... One of the problems is a lot of discussions on predestination only talk about the sovereignty of God. And that's really dangerous, and that's really careless. And a lot of times, these conversations are carried on by people who are just starting to get to, get to see these things, and they get mouthy about it, and they start running their mouths all over the place. And what you have is you have the, the sovereignty of God being pushed almost to the exclusion of human responsibility, And where is this going to take you? It's going to take you into a form of fatalism and a form of determinism, which is not biblical predestination. I don't think there's been one time where I've I've had to come alongside of somebody who was just opposed to this. When I, I finally say, tell me, what do you think the doctrine of biblical predestination is all about? And what they spit out to me is a form of fatalism or hard determinism. And I say to them, listen... That's not biblical predestination. And someone said, well, what is fatalism? What is hard determinism? Basically, it would be this. God's got this thing all figured out. He's got his list of people, and uh, his list of people are coming to Jesus, and it doesn't matter what I do. It just doesn't matter what you do. That doesn't matter. Listen, everyone, that is not biblical predestination. It absolutely does matter what you do. And this goes back to what I said about the Trinity, Oftentimes, we take God's mysteries and we try to scale them down so we, can, so we think that we can fully understand them and get them in our nice little Western outline. And what we end up doing is we end up distorting them when we try to do that. You can only take the Trinity, for example, so far, and when you try to take it farther, you end up distorting it. These little brains, we're throwing rocks at the moon here. These little brains can only go so far when we're, discu- when we're talking about God. And that... that becomes the problem. We have to keep God's sovereignty out here. We also have to keep human responsibility out here. So someone will say, well, listen, you know, uh, someone who misunderstands that and just thinks about God's sovereignty will say, okay, God has his list of names. He has his book of life, and my name's either on that book or it isn't on that book. And uh, if my name is If my name isn't on that book, there's nothing I can do. And if my name is on that book, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm coming in. We can't look at this doctrine that way. We can't look at this doctrine that way. Why? Let's suppose that God gave us access to the book of life. Sometimes we think we'd like to peer at that. But I'm going to submit to us that we don't want that. There's a good reason that God hasn't given us that. Sometimes we refer to it as the decree. Imagine if God gave you the decree. There's a list of names. Everyone who is going to be in heaven, 
What's the first thing you would do if you had that book? Probably be, you'd probably be tempted to look to see if your name's there, wouldn't you? Maybe some of us would look for our loved one's names first. Maybe. But we're going to be getting our own name really soon. What if it wasn't there? What if it wasn't there? What if your name's there, but your spouse's name isn't? What if your name is there, your spouse's name is there, but your kids aren't? Or your parents? Or your brothers or sisters? Do you want that information? Let's ask a really important question, and this is an important question when it comes to talking about predestination and election. If you looked at that book and you discovered your name wasn't there, why wouldn't it be there? It, be, it would be because you rejected Jesus. That's why your name wouldn't be there. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The revealed things belong to us. I don't think we want to talk about this any further than that. I think we could safely say that predestination has never kept anyone out of heaven. There was a, a pastor at one of our synods. The best sermon I've ever heard in my life was preached by an unknown pastor. You don't know his name. Unknown pastor. I didn't know his name until that day. And he's a pastor in our denomination. I know who he is now, but he's still unknown. And here he was preaching. I'd never heard him before, and there he is preaching, and he preached the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. And one of the things that he said in that sermon was, predestination never kept anyone out of heaven. Oh, so helpful. That's so helpful. What people are rejecting oftentimes is they're rejecting distortions of the truth. They're not rejecting the truth itself. They think that they've gotten the truth with these distortions, but they haven't. And one of the reasons they haven't is because people are running the reapers about things they don't understand. And there's only some, we need to be humble about this. Let me, let me apply this to myself. I don't want to run my yapper about things I don't understand. Listen, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of things I don't understand. For example, how is human sovereign, or how is, how is God's sovereignty reconciled with human responsibility? You know, there's an old story of Charles Spurgeon, and I, I would, I, you know, I would probably, gab, I probably, if I would have been asked a question like this, I'd have probably gabbed the guy's ear off. But a news reporter went to Charles Spurgeon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty with human responsibility? And you know what he said? He said, I don't. I never reconcile friends. I shared that one time in seminary with Dr. Watt, who, you know, at one point in time, I used to kiddingly say, I'd go home and tell Tammy, I'm like, Dr. Watt knows everything, man. There's like nothing he doesn't know. He's, he's like, there's probably only one thing that he knows, and that way he can't be omniscient, but he's right neck. I mean, he, this guy knows everything, you know, and, and, and Tammy loved him because he's such, such a personable guy. You would all like him very, very much. And one time I shared that story with him. I can't remember if it was in class or if it was outside of class, but... He had never heard it, which amazed me. He had never heard that. And I said, yeah, you know, this news reporter came to Charles Spurgeon and asked him, how do you, you know, how do you reconcile the, uh, God's sovereignty with human responsibility? And, and you could see Dr. Watts looking at me like, what's the answer, you know? And I said, well, he said, you don't. I don't. I never reconcile friends. And Dr. Watt immediately got this big smile. And he was like, that's brilliant. 
The two things work together. But like Calvin would say, as soon as you try to penetrate this mystery, as soon as you try to go further than that, you fall into a labyrinth upon which there is no escape. In other words, that's a fancy um, ivory tower, high-voluted way of saying, we don't know. We just don't know. So what should we concern ourselves with? If you look at verse 6, it's right there before us. These people are among the community that have been given by the Father to the Son, and what can we say about them? They have kept the Father's word. This is what we need to be concerned with. I think a lot of our opponents on this doctrine, if we explained it this way, a lot of them, if they could get over, if they could get over a lot of the baggage that they've had for many, many years on this, if they could get over a lot of the misconstructions about this that they've had for many, many years, I think they would start to embrace it. And they would embrace it actually for their good. They would embrace it actually for their own edification. What do we need to be concerned with? They have kept your word. And verses 7 and 8 flesh it out. What does it mean to keep keep the Father's word? One, verse 7, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. In other words, they realize that Jesus' ministry is sourced and rooted in the Father. That's important to know. Why is that so important to know? Jesus just isn't out doing his own solo project. It's what John has been telling us all along. He started telling us that at the very beginning, and he's been telling that all the way through. The Holy Spirit has been repeatedly telling us that what Jesus does, he does nothing on his own, but what he does is what the Father does. He does what he sees the Father doing. He can do nothing on his own. What the Father does, he does as well. They've come to believe that. Imperfectly, of course. Let's not forget, probably within an hour or two, they're going to abandon Jesus. They're going to abandon him. And there's, a, there's another great illustration there. Actually, I should say application right there. J.C. Ryle brings this out uh, so masterfully in his comments on this, on this prayer. He says, look at the graciousness of our Lord. Jesus, does Jesus know that they're going to abandon him? Of course he knows it. He's even told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. Yet in his prayer, he doesn't say, Lord, this group... What am I going to do with this group? You know, one of them's going to betray me. Three times he's going to deny me. They're all going to scatter. That's not what Jesus does. Look at the high accolades he gets. They have kept your word, Lord. Is he unaware of their imperfections? No. But look how highly he speaks of them. Apply that to us. I... How often are we in the valley because all we're focused on is our imperfections and we're, we're, we're blaspheming because we think God is looking at us the way we would look at us if we were God. That's blasphemy, by the way. And I, I do it too. I think to myself, oh, Lord, you must be really... He, perhaps he is upset with me right now. Perhaps he is upset with you right now. But he's not looking at us the way that sometimes we in our flesh will think he's looking at us. We get upset with our children sometimes, don't we? But do we ever withdraw our love from them? Oh, my heavens, no. Does he ever withdraw his love from us? Oh, we're convinced of it sometimes based on our performance, aren't we? What a little Pharisee. Where did he come from? Where'd she come from? 
We need to understand this. This word speaks to us. It's imperfect. They're going to abandon him. Yet he says they've kept your word. How imperfect. But there's enough intact here that they're in the faith. They understand, first of all, that the source of Jesus' ministry is from the Father. They also understand, verse 8, I have given them the words that you gave me. See, he's not on a solo project. His message, and in fact, in uh, John 7, 16, if I'm remembering correctly, in John 7, 16, Jesus says that my message is not my own, but his who sent me. John 7, 16, I think, is the site for that. And Jesus is here praying. He's saying, listen, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Imperfect. It's imperfect. Just like our faith is imperfect. Is anybody sitting here this morning with perfect faith? Because if you are, I need to sit down and listen to you. In fact, it would be the benefit of this congregation that, that I do sit down and listen to you if you've got perfect faith, because my faith is imperfect. Sometimes I have doubts. Do you ever have doubts? Boy, they can be so paralyzing. Unless I think one of the most helpful things, I don't think I should stand up here and say this all the time, but I think one of the most helpful things a pastor can tell his congregation is once in a while, maybe sometimes more often than he would like you to realize, he's not doing so good. And you could say, whoa, wait a second. You know, one morning I was headed down to the park and I, you know, I always hate this. I know most of us hate this, but I'm going down Route 2, and I'm, I don't know, I'm between the park and Aragon, I think, and just up over the guardrails comes a deer right in front of my truck. I mean, as quickly as it came in, I couldn't do anything but hit it. I felt so bad. And um, I didn't know this, but two or three cars behind me was a person who I knew who was also headed to the park. And what was so wonderful is I pulled in the park, and she pulled in. I didn't even know she saw it, but she come running over me. She's like, are you okay? I saw what happened. I was overwhelmed by the care that she had for me, you know? And, and I was like, yeah, I'm fine, but I felt so bad about that deer. And, and um, she said, well, I called the police and so they could come and remove it. And she did all that, you know? And, well, the, I saw her about a week later, and she confi she said to me, wasn't really confiding in me. She just said, she said in the presence of other people, she said, you wouldn't believe what that did for me, seeing that happen to you. Because as soon as I saw that happen to you, I thought to myself, wow, bad things happened to him. Yeah. Becoming a Christian doesn't insulate us from bad things, does it? doesn't insulate us from that at all. No, it doesn't at all. I think our time is up. I think we've had enough. I don't think we should go any further. But what have we seen here? The invisible God has been made visible in Christ. We see this great doctrine of election that there are people who are given. They're the fathers. They're given uh, from the Father to Jesus and we see that one of the marks of these people is that they keep the word. So what do we see here? We see uh, Jesus revealing the Father. We see election. 
But we also see human responsibility, don't we? And we need to keep in our minds all of these things together as we peer at these mysteries. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning is one of those messages where we just have to have our thinking caps on. And Father, our thinking is so imperfect, Lord. Help us to forget all the things that are imperfect about this message. There are many. And Father, we pray that, Lord, um, you would help us, O oh, Father, to be advocates of the truth, that, Father, we would be uh, uh, publishers of the truth, that as we go forth, Father, we could help people and help them correct their misunderstandings of these great truths, these truths that are so enriching once we understand at least what we can understand of them. And at once you give us the humility to, to say, listen, there's only so much we can understand and not try to simplify them and twist them and distort them and put them in our neat little outlines and our neat little um, uh, syllabi and, and, and do what it is that we would like to do with them, Father. For Lord, we know that as we try to explain the Trinity, as we try to explain biblical predestination, as we try to explain election, as we try to explain uh, your sovereignty and our responsibility, as we go too far, Father, we know that we always end up distorting and bending the truth into something that it is not. Father, help us and fill us full of uh, humility, Lord, that we would just look at these things and we would just gaze and wonder that this morning, if we are trusting in you, it's because you have given us to Jesus. We were always yours. Oh, Father, help us to bask in the beauty of that, not reject that, but bask in the beauty. And may we know that if we are not, if we are not in this state of grace, that it is our own fault. It's because we're refusing it's refusing to embrace Jesus Christ. And that, Father, may that lead us to embrace him, that we may be brought into this wonderful, this wonderful community, O oh Father. Lord, we pray that you'll bring and lead many, many into this fold, Father. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.